Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Intercepted. I'm Mortaza Hossein. I am incredibly honored to be with you here in Ghana and to the people of this incredible continent, to the people of Ghana, and to all the young leaders with us today, students, entrepreneurs, activists, advocates, It is my extraordinary honor to be with you. Last week, Vice President Kamala Harris wrapped a historic tour of Africa. Harris started off her three-nation visit in Ghana. As President Joe Biden said, at the U.S.-Africa Leaders' Summit last December, we're all in on Africa. We are all in. Harris's visit comes after a decade of China heavily investing in infrastructure throughout the continent and in critical resource mining. And her trip comes after another major foreign power, Russia, has also set its sights on growing its influence in Africa. So then, what does it mean that the United States of America is all in? It means that the United States is committed to strengthen our partnerships across the continent of Africa. Partnerships with governments, the private sector, civil society, and all of you. Partnerships based on openness, inclusiveness, candor, shared interests, and mutual benefits. And to be clear, America will be guided not by what we can do for our African partners, but what we can do with our African partners. During her week-long visit, which also included Tanzania and Zambia, Harris announced plans to boost economic investment and trade, as well as plans to open a plant to process minerals needed for electric vehicles. In February, Jose W. Fernandez, the U.S. Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy, and the Environment echoed the U.S.'s push to position itself as an economic ally to African nations. At the Indaba Mining Conference in South Africa, he spoke about the U.S. being an economic partner to trust. 
The partners will evaluate how they plan to avoid worsening environmental degradation and social inequality, and how they can involve local communities. Not only is this the right thing to do, but we also believe that this will result in stronger investment returns. And this is why we must lead a race to the top. U.S. interest in Africa is not new, but recently it has been more focused on military aid and training rather than economic investment. Over the last 20 plus years of the war on terror, the U.S. military footprint on the continent has grown tremendously, and it has had devastating consequences that are little understood or acknowledged. The U.S. Special Operations Command Africa conducted Flintlock 2023 from March 1 to 15 in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire. In a digital press conference on the purpose of Flintlock, Command of the U.S. Special Operations Command Africa, Rear Admiral Jimmy Sanders said the U.S. is focused on the threat of Al-Qaeda's continued expansion through the Sahel. Flintlock is an annual training sponsored by U.S. Special Operations Command Africa, or SOC Africa. Since 2005, the program has provided tactical training to exchange best practices, according to Rear Admiral Milton Jamie Sands. But a recent Pentagon report has found that the Sahel, which includes 11 African countries that sit between the Sahara Desert and the tropical south, now accounts for 40% of all violent activity by militant Islamist groups in Africa, more than any other region in Africa. Our guest today recently asked Admiral Sands about the Flintlock trainings and how they've undermined the very mission of the program. Our next question will go live to Nick Terse of The Intercept. Admiral Sands, thanks for taking questions today. Uh, last year, you told me that SOC Africa training always focuses on the importance of democracy and civilian oversight. Uh, but former Flintlock attendees have conducted at least five coups since 2015. Did you take any specific steps to ensure that Flintlock 2023 attendees don't do the same? And if so, what were these? Yes, Nick. Again, thanks for the question and hello. You know, this is this is a concern, uh, and it, really during any in a consideration with any partner in any training or engagement, Flintlock, as I've said, really focuses on respecting the rule of law, respecting and learning about the the law of armed conflict, and on civil control over the military. As we work with our partners, we emphasize the importance of our shared values. This really has been consistent, and we continue to focus on this and really increase our focus on this. Specifically, as you asked, Nick, you know what what have we done now? How is it different this year? I would say that while we always focus on the rule of law, we've really developed a much more thorough plan and integration. Uh, for effects on that. So we're looking not just at our uh, coordination with our, our, our partners on rule of law, but also our coordination with our partners on integration uh, with the police forces, on integration with a whole of government approach to tackling some of these challenges. Uh, but I think that you know we, we remain obviously concerned. Uh, we remain focused and committed uh, to partners with shared values to the United States and our allies. 
I'm now joined by Nick Terse, contributing writer for The Intercept, reporting on national security and foreign policy, and no better person to speak with about the impact of the U.S. military's presence in Africa. Nick, thanks for being here. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So, Nick, you've been covering U.S. military operations in Africa for many, many years, and one of the few reporters to do it on such a consistent basis. It's a region of the world where there's relatively less coverage, and many people don't know what the extent or scope of the U.S. military presence in the region is. Can you talk a bit, very broadly, about what AFRICOM is in the context of the U.S. military and what it does in Africa? Sure. Uh, AFRICOM, or U.S. Africa Command, is the umbrella uh, U.S. military command. They call it a geographic combatant command that's responsible for the entirety of Africa except for Egypt, which is uh, in the domain of CENTCOM. And AFRICOM was established in late 2007, became operational in 2008. And in that time uh, that it's been in operation, AFRICOM has built a archipelago of uh, military bases across the northern tier of Africa, stretching from uh, the east to the west. And they run uh, military operations all across the continent. We're talking everything from uh, run-of-the-mill training missions to direct action, special operations missions, that's commando raids, drone strikes, and the like. Do we have a sense of which countries the U.S. has a military presence in Africa under the aegis of AFRICOM, and what countries they're carrying out the operations uh, that you alluded to just now? AFRICOM has a uh, presence, uh, what they call a footprint or or base posture, so an actual physical base in about uh, 15 countries across Africa. The countries with the the largest U.S. presence uh, at the moment would be Djibouti, where the U.S. has its one uh, lone acknowledged military base, which is Camp Lemonnier. They have uh, a series of, of outposts in, uh, in Somalia. Uh, these were shut down uh, for the most part at the end of the Trump administration. They're being built up under the, the Biden administration right now. And then uh, in Niger, in West Africa, the U.S. has a, a robust presence with, uh, with several military bases and uh, a CIA outpost as well. So, you know, you've reported quite extensively about specific operations and, uh, you know, strikes and attacks and so forth in the aftermath of them and corruption and other uh, illicit activities in and around uh, this military footprint, as you, as you described it. You know, I think a lot of people don't actually understand what the mission is of AFRICOM in the region. Like, who are they fighting? Who are they ostensibly there to fight? You said 15 different countries, too, and what unifying threat uh, justifies being there for 15 different countries? Or what, what is the war that AFRICOM currently is there to fight? Uh, and who is on the other end, ostensibly, of these strikes and raids and so forth? Yes, this is, um, I mean, I, I think in, a, uh, in many respects, you can think about Africa as, uh, as ground zero of the, the now nameless uh, U.S. war on terror. You know, the, the Pentagon talks a good game about uh, moving on to, you know, a near-peer conflict, you know, great power competition. But in Africa, the the war on terror goes on unabated. And, uh, you know, this is really, it's it's been going on now for more than 20 years. Uh, in the aftermath of 9-11, the U.S. was, you know, casting around for places to fight the war on terror. 
they looked around the world and uh, they happened upon the idea of uh, un- ungoverned uh, spaces or undergoverned spaces, places that they saw as, as blank spaces on the map where terrorism might flourish. Now, if you look at uh, U.S. military literature from around the time of 9-11, 2000, 2001, 2002, you find that they, the, uh, the Pentagon wasn't able to actually name one transnational terror group in sub-Saharan Africa. But nonetheless, they started pumping counterterrorism funds into what they considered to be potential hotspots in Africa. So Somalia and also in the West, in the, uh, the Sahel uh, region of, of West Africa. And in the time since, uh, there's been a great flourishing of, uh, of, of terrorist groups, militant groups on the continent. Again, at the time of 9-11, they weren't able to identify any. Now they uh, identify about 50 different terrorist groups or militant groups uh, operating on the continent. In East Africa, it's uh, the primary enemy that the United States is fighting would be uh, Al-Shabaab in Somalia and uh, a small uh, ISIS affiliate there, and in the west uh, of Africa, in the Sahel region, specifically Niger, Burkina Faso, and Mali, uh, the U.S. has uh, has targeted uh, ISIS and Al Qaeda affiliates in that region. So I want to break down and ask you about some specific countries you've done extensive reporting on the consequences of U.S. military actions, in particular Niger, where you've done some really important reporting recently. Uh, obviously, there, the U.S. government's there ostensibly under the framework of the war on terror to help the Niger government fight uh, Islamic extremist groups in the country. What has the impact been of that war? And do you know anything about the local dynamics which have led it to be yoked into the war on terror? In West Africa, specifically the Sahelian region, where the countries of, of Niger, uh, Burkina Faso, and, and Mali meet, the tri-border region, there's been a tremendous uptick in terrorist activity, uh, especially over the last decade. But over the last 20 years, the United States has focused on this area and pumped um, more than uh, $500 million in counterterrorism funds, security assistance, into this, uh, into Niger specifically. And Niger now hosts the, the largest and most expensive uh, drone base uh, run by the U.S. military in Africa in the, the city of Agadez. It was built at a price tag of more than $110 million and it's maintained uh, to the tune of about 20 to $30 million uh, each year. It's a surveillance hub and a, and a, a linchpin of, of U.S. security architecture in the region. Uh, you know, the, the United States has had uh, a, a difficult time with its allies in the region. Uh, there have been a, a couple coups in uh, neighboring Burkina Faso, which has caused the United States to uh, dial back some of its security assistance there. Uh, the, uh, the government in Mali also succumbed to a coup and since then has, uh, has distanced itself from the West and embraced uh, the Wagner Group and uh, and Russian security assistance. So Niger has become you know, ever more important to the United States as uh, you know, the, the primary place where it can you know, fight terror in the region. But you know, if you look at the, uh, the metrics, they've all gone in the wrong direction. Uh, if you, you know, the United States began uh, providing uh, counterterrorism assistance to uh, Niger in 2002, 
uh, at that time, you know, there were only nine terrorist attacks in, in all of Africa, according to the State Department. Uh, last year, the number of violent events in the tri-border region, Niger, Mali, and Burkina Faso, uh, reached close to uh, 2,800, according to the Pentagon's own statistics. So this is a jump of more than 30,000%, uh, you know, over the last 20 years. So it's, um, you know, while correlation doesn't equal causation, uh, we're looking at, uh, you know, a, a tremendous uptick uh, in uh, terror attacks, also in fatalities from them, uh, over the, the same years that the United States has made this area a uh, counterterrorism focus. Well, it's interesting because what you're describing very similarly tracks uh, U.S. military operations, uh, the correlation between increase of terrorism and more military operations in the Middle East, obviously, you know, there was political destabilization triggered by many of those wars and so forth. Uh, but as you said, Africa or parts of Africa have become terrorism hotspots during the time that the U.S. has been there operating ostensibly to fight terrorism, you know, for two decades now. So, you know, kind of awkwardly, the U.S. also through AFRICOM, as I understand, provides military training to partner militaries in Africa or local governments who are allied with the U.S. will send their officers to the U.S. for training. And we see this in other parts of the world, too, in uh, Egypt and Pakistan and other places where the U.S. wants to have uh, close ties with governments where the state is relatively weak, but the military is strong. They will cultivate uh, military leaders or young officers who will go on to become leaders in their armies and have a relationship with them going forward. Now, as you've reported, it's a very, very interesting story in The Intercept. In Africa, many U.S.-trained leaders have gone on to take very important political roles in their country when they go back, including embarking on coups at times in their countries uh, to depose uh, leaders, civilian leaders, and put themselves in, in place. Can you talk a bit about the coup history of U.S. military-trained officers in Africa and how it's played out in recent years? Yes, um... Yeah, this is, is something that's uh, it's it's come to the attention of, of Congress recently. Uh, there's there's finally been some some questions asked. Um, the United States actually uh, last month just wrapped up its its signature special operations counterterrorism exercise. It's called uh, Flintlock, and you know this this Flintlock operation has been going on now since 2005. Um, you know, Flintlock attendees have conducted at least uh, five coups in the last eight years. And since 2008, uh, U.S. trained officers have attempted at least nine coups and succeeded in at least eight across five West African countries. Uh, Burkina Faso three times, Guinea, Mali three times, Mauritania, and, uh, and the Gambia. So, you know, in a, in a perverse way, you know, this might be the most uh, successful of all, uh, you know, U.S. military engagement on the continent because uh, it's it's the one one area that you can point to where the U.S. has uh, shown real results, uh, not the results that uh, you know, the United States would want to brag about. But um, you know, they they have uh, embraced officers who um, who have been uh, militarily successful in in one way. Uh, and that's in, in overthrowing their governments, uh, and in many cases, uh, democratically elected governments. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You know, you mentioned earlier that part of the reason that the U.S. was compelled to get involved in Africa militarily through AFRICOM was the idea of weak states or ungoverned zones uh, being a threat anywhere in the world where terrorist groups could potentially form and so forth. One thing that I found in other parts of the world, and I'm curious in your take uh, reporting on the ground in sub-Saharan Africa, is that a lot of times uh, the U.S. gets looped into local ethnic rivalries, which maybe had no relation to transnational terrorism but get put into that framework either while the U.S. is there or because the U.S. is there as a means of galvanizing people against one another or against a foreign presence. Can you talk a bit about, you know, in the countries, I was thinking very much in Niger, for instance, what is the ethnic dynamic in the country and how much is that pre-existing to the U.S. presence there? And how has the U.S. played in? Have they taken sides between ethnic groups and deemed it the war on terrorism? I also get the impression that the U.S. is not very sophisticated in its understanding of the dynamics of various parts of the world. And I'll say this for you know Iraq and Afghanistan, where they didn't really know the tribes, they didn't know the religions or ethnic groups, but they kind of got involved. Is the same sort of uh, naivete or indifference also manifesting in U.S. military operations in Niger and other countries? Yeah, I think that's very much the case. Um, you see this uh, across the Sahel um, very much so in Niger, also in, in neighboring Burkina Faso. Uh, the, the ethnic group, the, the Fulani, they're also known as the, the Pul. Um, they're semi-nomadic Muslim cattle herders. And across the region, they have you know, long-standing grievances with uh, their governments. You know, there's been you know, government neglect of their communities, a, a lot of socioeconomic want in the community. And... Um, uh, the communities have been stigmatized in many ways, uh, tagged as, as terrorists. Um, this stigma has, has further marginalized them, encouraged abuse by government troops, and, uh, and, and also encouraged uh, recruitment by, by terrorist groups, uh, you know, preying upon these, these grievances. And you know, if you talk to, uh, to U.S. military personnel in the region, there doesn't seem to be uh, an understanding of this. Uh, that, uh, you know, again, you know, as you said, in, in, a, in Iraq and Afghanistan, there's, um, there's a, a great deal of uh, naivete when it comes to uh, an, an understanding of, uh, of longstanding ethnic grievances. And, you know, the U.S. has thrown its, its, uh, its support behind the, the government in Niger, uh, pumped a tremendous amount of money into, you know, uh, quote-unquote, professionalizing these security forces. Uh, but if you talk to the uh, Fulani or, or Pol community, they'll tell you that security forces are often used as uh, as an ethnic militia for 
uh, ruling elites. You know, and, and I don't think the United States has ever understood this uh, in, in any kind of real way that, uh, you know, that their security assistance is, uh, it, it, it's really fed terrorism throughout uh, the region and specifically in Niger. There was recently a, uh, a, a UN report that showed that, uh, you know, the, the number one reason for people joining terror groups across Niger, Mali, Burkina Faso, and, uh, and five other uh, sub-Saharan African nations was um, due to uh, socioeconomic marginalization and also uh, from, uh, you know, government abuse, uh, abuse by security forces. And, uh, you know, this, this is something that just the, the United States doesn't seem to have a, a appreciation for or any kind of uh, remedy for. Yeah, I was skeptical if the U.S. invaded Iraq with the understanding the difference between Sunnis and Shias or invaded Afghanistan with the understanding the ethnic differences in the country that they would devote or understand, you know, in our Africa where they devote less resources to understand even better uh, the tribal differences and ethnic differences which may come, in, come into play. Which So I'm not too surprised to hear that, unfortunately. So this kind of brings me to the next question. In these conflicts, the U.S. has been taking the side of states. So they take the side of the Nigerian government or the Niger government or the Somali government. And they are allied, arrayed against these ethnic groups, which may sometimes be joining terrorist organizations or pledging allegiance to them, sometimes in defense against the government or what they see as government abuses. In the context of these wars, which the U.S. public has not paid very close attention to, are there particular abuses or instances of civilian casualties which you've reported on, uh, which you think are quite egregious but have not risen to public attention? Yes, most definitely. Um, you know, and I and I should make uh, you know some distinction here as well that um, you know, the U.S. military, the Pentagon, doesn't seem to have a, a very good appreciation of this. The um, Africom itself. Uh, never seems to you know un- understand these dynamics but if you read the state department's most recent analysis of, of human rights in Niger it was released uh, just last month i mean it catalogs uh you know a, a tremendous number of abuses including credible reports of arbitrary and unlawful killings by the government it says very explicitly that the armed forces are accused of uh of executing persons who are suspected of fighting with uh with militants, with terrorist groups, uh, and it catalogs also, you know, torture, arbitrary detention, unjustified arrests, uh, life-threatening prison conditions, and also rampant impunity among the security forces. Now, this hasn't dissuaded the uh, the State Department from also throwing, you know, its its full-fledged support behind the the government in Niger, but uh, but you know, there there is an appreciation of this uh, that that these abuses are going on. Uh, the U.S. just hasn't acted on it. You know, one of the most egregious that uh, that I discovered in my reporting was um, uh, it was something that was actually brought to light by Niger's own uh, National Commission on Human Rights. They investigated allegations that in uh, 2020, during just uh, a, a one-week-long military operation, 102 civilians had disappeared uh, from one of the areas that. Uh, that Niger security forces were were operating in uh, during a, a counterterrorism uh, operation, and they did an on the ground investigation, which is is very it's it's very odd for for Niger. There aren't a lot of uh, fact finding missions that go on in in these areas that they call uh, zone rouge or, or red zones, uh, terrorist hotbeds, 
And uh, this National Commission found uh, 71 bodies in six mass graves. Uh, Human Rights Watch went in afterward. They discovered an additional uh, six mass graves with uh, 34 bodies. Uh, and this was just in the space of one week that, that these killings were, were carried out. So, you know, it, it, it really it shows the type of operations that are, that are going on. And again, this was just one circumscribed area. But these operations are going on on a, on a regular basis uh, in the, the east of the country and also in the, the far west of the country. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised uh, that if, if more investigations were carried out that you would find uh, more evidence of, of killings of, of this nature because it's, it's certainly the type of thing that I heard about from uh, witnesses and survivors in these areas. One particular country I want to ask you about, which I think that there's some greater degree of U.S. public attention to, uh, among other sub-Saharan African countries or countries in the Horn of Africa, is Somalia. So presently, the U.S. is engaged in an armed conflict in support of the Somali government against al-Shabaab. You mentioned earlier that under the Trump administration, that presence was wound down, but now it's being ramped up a bit. Can you talk a bit about what the U.S. government is doing in Somalia or what the goal of this mission is to support the government and what the contours of it are today? Sure. Um, this is one of the, the longest standing, uh, you know, U.S. conflicts in the world, uh, one of the longest standing in, in Africa. It's been going on for, uh, you know, the uh, better part of, of 20 years now. Uh, the United States has, a, you know, a, a robust presence in Somalia, uh, several uh, U.S. bases uh, where the United States uh, operates drones, uh, some of them armed. Uh, they conduct uh, Airstrikes in the country in support of the uh, of the Somali government, uh, and that that government is in the midst of a, a major counterinsurgency campaign right now against, uh, primarily against uh, Al Shabaab, the preeminent terror group there. Uh, the United States does a lot of, of training. It's built forces in the country uh, that, uh, you know, some of which the United States uses as proxies. Uh, one is the Danab or Lightning Brigade. There's also a uh, force called the, the Puntland Security Force that was built by the CIA and then transferred to military control as surrogates for the United States uh, under a program called, uh, or authority, uh, known in U.S. code as, as 127E or 127ECHO. And you know, this, this authority allows the United States to hand-select uh, an indigenous force, arm it, train it, advise it, and send it out in the field to conduct missions for U.S. policy aims, which may or may not align with that of the, uh, of the host government. It's a, it's a very uh, shadowy program. The uh, operations are classified, but um, the United States has used it uh, to an astonishing ex extent in Somalia. So you described a very expansive network of bases and uh, military operations spanning many, many different countries across a huge territorial space in Africa. Do we know anything about the budget expenditures on the AFRICOM's presence in these countries? And how can we ballpark the figures in terms of uh, how much U.S. taxpayer money is being spent to pursue these various different conflicts in the, in the continent? It's, it's a very good question and, uh, and one that's very difficult to answer. Uh, if you... You know, to, to take the example of just talking about Somalia, 
there there is actually no uh, good budgetary information on the, the full extent of U.S. expenditures in Somalia over the last 20 years. Uh, only about six years of the last 20 has the United States had a, a, a detailed uh, counterterrorism budget for for Somalia that you could uh, parse and, and, and figure out exactly how much is being provided. Yeah, you know, these are these are closely <laughs> held secrets. Yeah, you know, just to um, to take uh, Niger as an example, you know, since since 2012, you know, U.S. taxpayers have shelled out about 500 million dollars uh, for security assistance there. Uh, in neighboring Burkina Faso, you know, close to uh, one billion dollars over the last 20 years. And that gives you an idea of of the type of money that we're talking about. But you know, a, a full accounting uh, doesn't exist, and it's uh, you know, it's 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 just a, a black box when it comes to the, the Pentagon's budget. So this brings me to another issue, which has been in the news quite a bit recently, which is the presence of another power in Africa, which is Russia. Uh, the New York Times had a story about uh, Russian mercenaries from the Wagner Group being space stationed in sub-Saharan Africa, particularly in Central African Republic, and doing something a little bit similar to what you're describing in AFRICOM's presence and partnering with local governments to fight their defined enemies, uh, with the difference being that they're specifically doing it for cash payment and acting effectively as mercenaries for the government in a much more straightforward way than the U.S. military is. What can we say about the involvement of foreign governments other than the U.S. in the region? And thinking of Russia and Wagner Group, but also France and other countries which have a colonial presence uh, and seek to maintain that today. Yeah, I mean, especially in West Africa, the French have had, uh, you know, as, as you said, they were the colonial power in the region. They've had a, a major military presence, and the, I think it's in in great extent the the failures of the the French and the the U.S. counterterrorism efforts over twenty years have have really opened the door to uh, to Wagner and and Russian influence in the region. You know, after all this time, after all this money spent, the metrics have gone uh, so far in the other direction that uh, governments and and peoples of these nations have become fed up. They've cast around for, you know, someone, uh, you know, another partner, and uh, and and Wagner has been there. You know, I I wouldn't classify Wagner as a as a positive influence in the region. It's been implicated in a, in a great deal of uh, abuses, atrocities. Uh, this is something that that you hear U.S. officials talk about quite a bit. You know, recently, uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said, uh, "You know, where where Wagner has been present, bad things have inevitably followed." And and he, you know, made the case for the United States being um, the solution to this, and said that the United States had to show that it could deliver results. But uh, you know, as we've been saying, uh, the U.S. already has a two-decade record of counterterrorism engagement in the region. And, uh, and and you could say that uh, exactly what Blinken did, that bad things and overall worsening security have been the, the hallmarks of those years. Uh, you know, there, there's a reason why Wagner's been invited in. And I think uh, to a great extent, it's been U.S. and and, uh, and also French failures. You know, you've kind of been a roving reporter in Africa for quite some time now, and you've been covering these U.S. military operations or the context around the operations uh, to a degree which very few other U.S. reporters have done in the past two decades. 
can you, do you see a disconnect in terms of the extent of U.S. military involvement in Africa and the level of awareness or discussion of it back in the United States? Most definitely. I mean, it's it's always been very difficult to uh, you know, to to get Americans to uh, to show any interest in uh, in U.S. military operations and activity in Africa. I think you know this is this has allowed the United States to you know operate with, uh, with a great deal of impunity on the continent. There's very little uh, oversight accountability because um, the, the you know the American public uh, just isn't engaged. And you know, I I think most most Americans have a difficult time finding any of these countries on a map, uh, let alone trying to trying to figure out what might be going on there. They don't pay attention to the news coming out of Africa, and um, Perhaps the only time that this has really, uh, you know, been, you know, on the radar of most Americans was in 2017. This was also a, an operation in Niger. Uh, there was an ambush of U.S. troops near the village of Tongo Tongo. Four U.S. service members were killed, two others injured. And following that, you had, uh, you know, a number of, of key U.S. senators uh, even saying that they had no idea that U.S. troops were operating there. Uh, these included members of the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, the the people in America who should most know what the United States is doing in Africa. So I, I think when there's uh, you know that that level or 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 the the, the lack of uh, awareness of this among people who are supposedly overseeing it, you know it's 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 not a surprise that most Americans don't know about it. But uh, I think it's been to the the detriment of America and most certainly uh, Africans in these nations. You know, actually, one thing I also want to ask you, too, it's very interesting. At the start of our conversation, you mentioned that AFRICOM encompasses all of Africa except for Egypt. Can you talk a bit about the AFRICOM operations in North Africa outside of Egypt? Um, Obviously, there are governments there, Tunisia, Algeria, Libya, which, you know, culturally and uh, politically, they have differences from sub-Saharan Africa. What is the nature of African presence in those countries, and what type of conflicts are they involved in there? Yeah, um, you know, the United States has had you know heavy engagement in in North Africa uh, for for a long time. You know, Tunisia has actually been a, a, a real hotspot for the the program that I mentioned earlier, the Authority One Twenty Seven Echo. For for years, the United States uh, had uh, commandos on the ground operating with uh, Tunisian counterparts, you know, what, what can only be described as, as combat, ground combat against uh, Al-Qaeda uh, affiliates in that region. And, you know, this was also in, in 2017, the United States uh, was engaged in, in, a, in a firefight on the ground in uh, the Kasserine Mountains in, in Tunisia. AFRICOM still won't admit that that's where this this operation took place. Uh, the only thing you can get them to say is that it was in North Africa, but uh, it was very much in Tunisia. And um, you know, it's it's indicative of the the type of operations the United States has been able to conduct in secret because there hasn't been a great deal of oversight. Uh, the United States was heavily involved in uh, in fighting in Libya for years, uh, starting with the, the civil war to oust uh, Muammar Gaddafi back in uh, 2011. The United States spearheaded the you know NATO bombing efforts in the country, and you know in the years after that uh, had a robust presence of uh, of commandos on the ground uh, for for many years. Then, 
U.S. forces were were pulled out for a few years in the the late 2010s, but uh, I understand there's now uh, a U.S. presence on the ground and uh, a base in Libya again. There at at one time there was something like uh, four or five. Uh, there's at least one right now, and I think a growing U.S. special operations presence in the country. You know, during the Obama administration, uh, the United States also conducted a, a tremendous number of airstrikes, hundreds of airstrikes uh, against uh, ISIS affiliate who was operating uh, in Libya. Uh, this was uh, one of the primary spots of U.S. drone war in Africa. Uh, that's wound down in, in recent years, but there's still uh, a, a great deal of uh, U.S. surveillance flights over the region, uh, ISR, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance. So um, North Africa is still uh, a major source of concern and uh, an engagement for AFRICOM. Yeah. So Nick, can you talk a bit about other great power involvement in Africa, particularly with regards to China? China obviously has been looking into Africa for a source of resources. They've been investing in infrastructure in various African countries. And the U.S. has rhetorically at least evinced a desire to confront uh, China's presence in various parts of the world, including in Africa in recent years. Can you talk a bit about what China is doing there that we know and then how we've seen you, the U.S. respond to it? Sure. Yeah, I think, uh, I think you've seen, you know, when you, you compare and contrast uh, uh, U.S. engagement in Africa with, with China's, you know, you, you can't travel anywhere in Africa without seeing Chinese presence. Uh, but the, the Chinese have gone um, very much the soft power approach, and uh, you know they've they've uh, pursued uh, economic engagement, economic partnerships. You know, oftentimes, you know, there there seems seems to be a, to the, the the detriment of, of of countries. But one thing that you can't you know you can't argue with is that the the Chinese have a a, a bold, robust presence. You see large projects, uh, airports major road infrastructure projects, that type of thing. And, you know, the United States, uh, its engagement on the continent very much seems to be, you know, this, this counterterrorism uh, whack-a-mole. You know, one, one example that's, that's always struck me was that the um, United States has, a, it has an economic uh, a form of economic engagement called the, uh, the Millennium uh, Challenge Corporation, uh, where where it attempts to uh, to compete with with China in infrastructure building projects, uh, a few years ago in Mali, uh, the United States gave the Malian government uh, a major grant for an infrastructure project for building a stadium, but uh, there were no U.S. corporations that were interested in actually fulfilling this contract. So it eventually went to a uh, you know a a state run Chinese firm. So this was American taxpayer dollars, but on the ground, people who saw the stadium being built saw that uh, it was a Chinese company, Chinese workers. It looks like a Chinese project. And I think this is you know, one of the ways that the United States has been beaten by China on the continent. Even when the United States has, has found inroads, uh, the, the Chinese have been able to, uh, you know, to use it for their advantage. And, you know, Niger and other countries, obviously, they're quite uh, rich re rich deposits of certain resources like uranium and so forth as well, too. Have we seen any economic competition between foreign powers over access to these resources? And I'm very curious, actually, related to that, the 
interest of colonial, former colonial powers like France in the region? Like, why do they want to maintain a footprint? And why, besides terrorism, uh, might the U.S. be interested in the region and having some presence there? Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, uranium in, in Niger. Now, this is exceptionally important to, to France. You know, the, the French uh, nuclear power industry relies on uranium from Niger. So, uh, you know, obviously France has a, has a vested interest, and it's one of the reasons why they've had uh, such a, a continued robust presence in the Sahel, in Niger specifically. You know, the, the United States, uh, there are some some U.S. firms with, uh, you know, with economic interests there, but um, you know, U.S. companies have been interested. Uh, generally, they've, they've lost out and, and, and haven't been the beneficiaries of this. So you know, in, in, in many respects, uh, you know, the, the U.S. investment in, in Niger, if it ever pans out, you know, it, it, it might be very good for, for France, uh, but, uh, but for U.S. firms, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that there's, there's a, a real economic advantage to it, even, even if it did work, which it hasn't over the last 20 years. So the U.S. has taken a position of winding down the war on terror along, around much of the Middle East in the last couple of years and pivoting towards Asia or other parts of the world where they feel that they're more pressing geopolitical concerns. So we've seen uh, less active involvement in the Middle East and talks of drought drawing down from residual bases and so forth. But in Africa, it seems like the story is quite different. How do you see the trajectory of the U.S. military in Africa going? And can we expect broader and more deployments and activities in the future? Yeah, I think very much so. Yeah. Um, yeah, and as I said earlier, I think the war on terror has has really gone on unabated in Africa. We've heard uh, you know pledges from the White House, uh, the Biden administration, of ending uh, forever wars, but uh, you know Africa seems to have been left out of this. And you know, while uh, I think there's been an uptick of of U.S. commandos sent to other theaters, in addition to the Middle East. Uh, Europe and and the Pacific, uh, Africom still uh, gets a, a a large percentage of the uh, the amount of, of special operations forces uh, sent around the world, and you know there there seems to be uh, you know a renewed emphasis on uh, North Africa, uh, West Africa, and and also the the Somali theater. That uh, the Biden administration has uh, has increased troop numbers in in each of these areas, so I, I think you're going to see the the U.S. war continue there, and uh, and very possibly at an uptick. Nick Terse, thanks for joining us on Intercepted. Thanks so much for having me. That was Nick Terse, a contributing writer for the Intercept, reporting on national security and foreign policy. His most recent story for the Intercept is titled. AFRICOM Chief to Congress. We share core values with cool leaders. And that's it for this episode of Intercepted. Intercepted is a production of The Intercept. Jose Oliveras is the lead producer. Supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Rick Kwan mixed our show. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash join. Your donation, no matter what the amount, 
makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted. And definitely do leave us a rating or review. It helps to find us. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. That's podcasts at theintercept.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, I'm Murtaza Hussein. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.